In a sense, the Big Bang is an anecdote, and it begins with a tautology, you know, initial conditions. What else could there have been but initial conditions at the beginning? We still have a mystery, an unsolved mystery at inception. I think Terence McKenna used to say, give me one free miracle and I'll explain the rest, didn't he? The free miracle being (laughs) the creation of matter and energy and all the laws that govern it in a single instant from nothing. Hello and welcome back to the Vintage Books Podcast. I'm Lena Norms and I'm here to introduce a really special episode featuring two vintage authors. Merlin Sheldrake, the author of Entangled Life, How Fungi Made Our Worlds, Changed Our Minds and Shaped Our Futures, who's in conversation with Edward St. Alban, author of the Patrick Melrose novels and his new novel, Double Blind. Double Blind follows three close friends and their circle through a year of extraordinary transformation, set between London, the southeast coast of France, the mountains of California, and a rewilded corner of Sussex. This novel is as compelling about ecology, psychoanalysis, genetics, and neuroscience as it is about love, fear, and courage. Entangled Life is the best-selling book which journeys into the spectacular and neglected world of fungi, showing that fungi is not only a key to understanding the planet, but also life itself. Together they discuss their new books and everything from metaphor and anecdote to symbiosis and psychedelics. We hope you enjoy listening. Here they are with Merlin starting the conversation. So, Teddy, I wanted to ask you to start with about what led you to write this amazing novel and what led you to think and to write so much about the sciences and the practices of the sciences. Well, I think the, the trouble probably started in, in as long ago as 1996 when I went to a conference in Tucson, Arizona called Towards a Science of Consciousness and realise that consciousness, which is the only thing we know we have and the basis of everything else we think we know, was something which hadn't been successfully included in science's uh, majestic description of the world. And as time went on, I started to wonder to what extent the authority of science was undermined by that explanatory gap, the first-person narrative of experience, seem to refuse to be reduced to the third-person narrative of experiment. And the narrative of electrochemical activity and neuroimaging and genetic sequences somehow failed to capture the quality of being being alive. This book took me a, a long time to write because I wasn't trained as a scientist. I, uh, my subject at university was English literature. I had to try and absorb so much new and alien knowledge and and then integrate it into a fictional world of of characters and plot and um, imagination and and metaphor. Um, 
I mean, what struck me about your brilliant book was um, how much you integrated imagination and metaphor into into a science book. Was that something you thought about a lot while you were writing it? Yes, it was. And it's often the case in the sciences where researchers are handling phenomena which are inaccessible to our unaided senses. And so we need linguistic tools, we need imaginative tools to be able to explore and understand these phenomena. And, and these, these analogies and metaphors give us frameworks for thinking, frameworks to arrange our thoughts and allow us to see further. And so scientists are using metaphors all the time. Um, and I wanted to explore these metaphorical worlds with relation to the microbial sub-visible realm. And I also wanted to, to explore the different ways we could talk about the same kind of phenomenon, because it seems to me that we need a, a balanced narrative diet. We get into trouble where we prioritise one type of story over all other types of story for ideological reasons. So this was a, a big part of writing the book for me, was uh, exploring and interrogating metaphors that we had already been using to describe these phenomena and also to try and think about new ways to imagine uh, these phenomena. Even the, the, the title of your first chapter, What Is It Like to Be a Fungus, is, is surprising. Uh, I, I took it to be an echo to some extent of, of Thomas Nagel's um, famous essay on what it's like to be a bat. There are other worlds of experience which we only have limited access to because we have different uh, bodies. But nevertheless, the only way we can get into those worlds in so far as we can can't be through intersubjectivity because we're from different species, but it can be through imagination. And I was struck by how much you made an effort to see the, the world from the fungal point of view, in the same way that I try and make an effort to imagine other mentalities and uh, other characters who have lives completely different from my own. Did you throw yourself into that very consciously? Yes, I feel like I have some kind of a responsibility uh, as someone thinking about the living world to try to step outside my human-centred perspective, even if my efforts are at becoming a fungus are obviously doomed to failure. I feel like the effort to try is, is good manners. What they experience is so radically different from us, and, and we won't be able to understand their lives unless we just start thinking about their, um, the worlds that they're, they're exposed to. And in a sense, uh, metaphors resemble one of the great themes of your book, which is not only about this relatively obscure kingdom of life, fungi, but about symbiosis, in that metaphor takes elements from different parts of experience and brings them together. If a ship ploughs through the water, the agricultural and the nautical are brought together and generate a hybrid in our imagination. In that case, a very cliched one, but a, a cliché is just a, a, a metaphor that's been destroyed by its own success. So symbiosis is something that was a revelation for me in reading Entangled Life and the the complexity of the symbiosis, not only are, are fungi collaborating with plants, but then within the 
fungi, there are bacteria, and sometimes bacteria within the bacteria. And your descriptions totally justify the title of the book. Um, it is so entangled. Did you know that before you went on your field trip to Panama? Or was there a process of discovering it as more and more entangled as you went along? The more you look, the more entangled it gets. And this is one of the, the great thrills of studying the microbial world in particular. When I was in Panama, it was really, really hit home because I was there um, in a kind of disciplinary symbiosis because you would be talking to these other researchers and the researchers would be thinking about uh, an aspect of your subject matter, but from this other perspective, from the perspective of the other actor or another actor in that, in that relationship. And it's an interesting feature of the study of symbiosis within the modern sciences that disciplinary specialization between, say, microbiologists and plant biologists made it difficult for researchers to study the relationships between these very different organisms. They were separated by uh, disciplinary chasms. And so one of the trends that we're seeing now in the, in the biological sciences is towards more and more interdisciplinary work. And I think this is a reflection of our greater understanding of the living world uh, as uh, inextricably um, entangled, fundamentally so. And this is one of the things I really enjoyed about Double Blind. Uh, many of the characters are uh, wrestling with different kinds of uh, scientific problem. But what we always see is the scientific problem and inquiry firmly embedded within the lived lives of these characters. Uh, we see them wrestling with these dilemmas in which their own personal, emotional, intuitive worlds are uh, in dialogue with their uh, scientific inquiries. We don't have uh, a portrayal of scientists as, as, as disembodied rationalities. This is a really helpful uh, and, and beautiful way to, to explore the role that these um, disciplinary relationships can have in our, in our lives and how confusing it is when we start trying to divide one area of human thought and, and experiment and experience from, from another. Well, I felt that that, that was my responsibility as, as a novelist, that although I was fascinated by a lot of science and, and a lot of uh, scientific arguments and different interpretations, I couldn't turn my characters into advocates uh, of one position or another, like um, uh, Peacock did, and he'd have characters called Mr. Materialism or um, <laughs> uh, Mademoiselle Elan Vital or whatever. But I wanted them to be, you know, fully realised human beings. And Auden said something along the lines that um, he was a poet when he was writing poetry and the rest of the time he was a person. And I felt that that must be true of scientists as well, <laughs> that they didn't um, uh, wear their white coats in, in, in bed. I also wanted to to ground science in ordinary human experience, experience of physical disease and, and mental ill health. There's a character in my novel who's suffering from cancer. There's another character who's a, who's a schizophrenic. But they, those were ways into science that didn't go through the laboratory door. They go through the front door. We're, we're all living with science the whole time when we, um, you know, during this pandemic, when we wonder what to eat, when we go and see a doctor. One of the things that, that becomes clear when you think about the sciences not as a, a unified, unitary 
discipline, but as uh, a collection of practices and norms and values undertaken by people with very different backgrounds and ways of thinking and ways of understanding. I and mean, if you are a, a quantum physicist, as a layperson with regard to uh, a herpetologist, the sciences themselves are, are, are plural and, and constantly evolving and shifting and changing over time. And there's this wonderful passage in Double Blind where you discuss this. The character says, I guess the thing I've been trying to get across to you over the last year is that if science offered a unified vision of the world, it would be a pyramid with consciousness at the apex, arising explicably from biology, and life arising smoothly from chemistry, and the periodic table in all its variety emerging inevitably from the fundamental forces and structures described by physics. But in reality, even physics isn't unified, let alone unified with the rest of science. It's not a pyramid. It's an archipelago, scattered islands of knowledge, with bridges running between some of them, but with others relatively isolated from the rest. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about this this image and how this uh, became a theme for you. It became a, a theme for me um, because of uh, feeling that there were these painful explanatory gaps between the the, the big branches of um, of science and that what uh, uh, Saul just described in my novel is 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 not the case. There isn't the pyramid, although we're often invited to believe that um, we're only a minutes away from from seeing it being finished. But but that um, the way forward is going to be in integrating different disciplines in in going with the with the bridge builders um, and not the wall builders, a familiar situation, and finding ways to to collaborate. And that that rests on uh, an assumption that there's a unity to, to knowledge. We can approach describing reality together, whether it's from the point of view of a fiction writer or a field researcher. There's an enjoyable passage in Entangled Life where... You take LSD under very controlled um, conditions. Um, being a scientist, you don't take psychedelics in a hedonistic or haphazard way, I'm pleased to say. But um, it was administered by a nurse who made sure that you swallowed the entire uh, dose in the beaker. And after your experience, you had to fill out a, a psychometric questionnaire and you write this. The psychometric questionnaire I was struggling to complete had been designed to assess this kind of experience. But the more I tried to cram my sensations into a five-point scale on a page, the more confused I became. How can one measure the experience of timelessness? How can one measure the experience of unity with an ultimate reality? These are qualities, not quantities, yet science deals in quantities. I squirmed, took several deep breaths and tried to approach the questions from a different angle. How do you rate your experience of amazement? The bed seemed to sway gently and a school of thought scattered through my mind like startled minnows. How do you rate your experience of infinity? I could feel the scientific procedure groaning under the strain of what seemed to be an impossible task. 
I love that passage because you're taking psychedelics which are category dissolving and ego dissolving and which throw the whole uh, subject-object relationship into question. And then because of the habits of science, you have to award points to these various kinds of, of transformative experience. And this brings us back to the reason why there still is a conference called Towards a Science of Consciousness, because on the one hand you have the quantitative habit of science, and on, on the other hand the qualitative experience, and particularly qualitative experiences like this, which uh, challenge so many of our basic uh, assumptions. What did you end up writing on the question, <laughs> or did you abandon it? <laughs> oh, well, I spent much of the time uh, laughing. I had to fill it out every hour or so. It was no oh, escape. I didn't realise that. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. And so it was, it was a fascinating situation where they would come in at the same time as doing the questionnaire, they would take a blood sample from my arm. So that was the objective science looking at my body, you know, my body as uh, matter. Yeah. And then this was the part of the science trying to access my internal subjective qualitative experience as if objectively and and the the whole dance of of the experimental procedure just became it's so funny because it seems it seems natural to us as researchers in the sciences that that we can subject uh, pretty much whatever we like to an experiment as long as we're deft enough or or sensitive enough to design it but there are some things that you just simply can't access uh, objectively. And the inside of a subjective experience is one of those things. Um, but I feel like it gets this matter that you described earlier, which was that of um, experience and experiment. Absolutely. So no wonder you were laughing, because you'd just been through an experience which um, threw into question the whole idea of objectivity, because under the influence of psychedelics, your subjectivity flows into an object and the object flows into you and and there seems to be emerging and a dissolution. And so, um, you know, clinging to these old divisions in trying to ask what the experience is like is is particularly absurd. But do you, do you feel that fungi have a, a special genius for... Um, taking over animal minds. There's the the very startling example of the carpenter ant, I think, that gets taken over by a, 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 a species of cordyceps, and it's a very vivid passage in, in the book. What I, I found um, particularly interesting about your description of it was that the fungus doesn't go into the ant's brain we would assume that the first thing you would try and get control of would be the brain, because we have a central nervous system. But but the fungus doesn't have a brain, and it doesn't go for the ant's brain, does it? It takes takes it over by other means, isn't that correct? Yeah, the, the researchers studying this uh, were very surprised to find out that the fungus was everywhere in the ant's body. In fact, 40% of the ant's body was made up of fungus, but one of the few places the fungus wasn't was the uh, ant's brain. And so that's led them to this suggestion that the fungus is able to puppet the ant's behaviour by releasing chemicals that act on the brain. So the the fungus is um, in the level of pharmacological precision um, to cause an ant to climb up to a very certain height, 15 centimetres above the forest floor, and to bite onto uh, the veins 
of leaves, not any old place on the underside of a leaf. One of the researchers, David Hughes, describes these infected ants as a fungus in ants' clothing, which I always think is such a good way to think about it, because what this fungus is doing is, is commandeering an animal body, which allows it the benefits of, of animalhood for a short while, and then it can revert. But in, in, the, in the symbiotic range, this is definitely parasitism. <laughs> uh, some of the metaphors you've objected to, which have blocked the way, have been about master and slave relations, where, um, in the case of lichens, which are a symbiosis between fungi and algae. And uh, seeing through that, seeing through the necessity of one of the, uh, the collaborators being in charge was an important breakthrough. We, we want to not box it in to some extent, don't we, in both our books. Do you feel that that's true in your case? Definitely. I mean, when you think about fungi for more than a minute or so, it becomes clear that you can't talk about these organisms without talking about where, they, where they're living, with whom are they entangled? I mean, fungi form mycelial networks. Mycelium is um, a branching, fusing networks of tubular cells. And the whole point of mycelium is to allow fungi to feed, to digest their surroundings. They have to insinuate their bodies within their source of food, and which means that they want maximum contact with their surroundings, which means that it's very hard to think about what this fungus is doing without also thinking about where it happens to be. And so it's a bit like that John Muir line, that when you tug on anything, uh, you find it hitched to everything else. So this is what I ended up thinking about a lot in Entangled Life, these shimmering networks of interconnectivity and uh, interdependence from which we're inseparable and in which we belong. This raises some really interesting questions for those researchers studying the living world, because where do you draw the line? You have to enclose your um, study somehow, otherwise it would be overwhelming. And so the question of where you draw your line becomes a really interesting question rather than an answer known in advance. What are we calling an individual? What, for the purpose of this study, makes sense to call an individual? Absolutely. I know we need to at least pretend to be an individual when we're applying for a passport or, or paying a parking fine, but we're unlikely to, to end up thinking that it's a fundamental idea if we're lucky enough to be invited to to a hospital to take LSD or indeed if we think about as one of my characters who's a, a, a naturalist called um, Francis does think think about resting in awareness which he does while he's walking around this wilding project that he's um, helping to run and by by resting in awareness he's trying to get to something beyond uh, his individuality, beyond his personality. And many of the most interesting points of experience are points of, of dissolution of, of individuality and realising in a deep way the interdependence which you've studied in, in such great detail, but which um, has been discussed in many forms from many different angles. Well, it's a wonderful thing in Double Blind to be, to be existing within long, blossoming thoughts that take place over whole chapters. So I had a strong sense that um, these, these conscious experiences that are being um, relayed um, had a kind of branched 
connective structure, rather like a shrub or, or a fungal network. It felt like um, the mind as living organism, the, the flow of consciousness as it grew into new space and into new relation. I definitely think there's a connection between this um, inquiry into uh, the way that we think, the way that our minds work as we experience them from the inside, and the ways that uh, organic forms arise in, in the living world, um, in what we can see uh, a fungal network doing, for example, uh, what we can see a, a plant root system doing. If consciousness doesn't emerge as a complete surprise out of this dead world, one of the reasons would be because everything is proto-conscious and our particular form of consciousness is just one way in which these proto-conscious elements are arranged. But that creatures without brains and um, without central nervous systems like the slime molds you write about so enchantingly or, or the fungi can also be having some kind of experience or at least exhibiting intelligence that there are thousands of ways of being alive and we we assume that any matter is dead it's made up of atoms which are full of um, fervent activity with uh, electrons spinning around nuclei you know they're not as dead as we like to think when we put ourselves into an I-it relationship to the world, which is what reinforces our, our sense of individuality and comes from our sense of hyper-individuality. So that's one of the reasons I think entangled life is in such interesting territory, because by dissolving these borders and bringing down these walls, were opening up the, the possibility of, of solutions to some of these chronic problems which generate you know, dualism, fragmentation, over-specialisation and misery. There's a passage that I'd like to read from Double Blind uh, on the subject of Darwin. And uh, this is Francis reflecting. Being a naturalist wasn't a bad tradition. After all... Before Neo-Darwinism, there had been Darwinism, and before Darwinism, Darwin, a man writing about earthworms and making detailed observations of living creatures, and joining pigeon-fancying clubs, and gardening, and corresponding with other naturalists without treating their testimony as merely anecdotal. The anecdote is precisely where um, experience uh, can turn into into evidence um, and uh, not just under the extremely controlled conditions of a double blind experiment so we we don't have to um, shoo away anecdote as if it was a sort of uh, a stray dog that was going to invade our perfectly sterile picnic some people say the plural of anecdote is data, and uh, many people within the sciences say that no, this is not the case because what we think of as a uh, datum is um, not just you know, incidental uh, information received by accident or in the normal course of a day, as, as an anecdote might be, but has been teased out of the world through a careful arrangement of apparatus and uh, procedure that we might call an experiment. But, but of course, much of the sciences doesn't depend 
uh, on what we think of as controlled double-blind experiments, because it can't be. So uh, astronomy, for example, has to take what data we get. You know, when the, the telescope is picking up a, a pulsar or a fast uh, radio burst, these just occur. We have to make sense of these as celestial anecdotes. Mm. Um, we can't start intervening on this cosmic level in the way that we would do in a double-blind controlled experiment. So there are just so many ways to investigate systematically. And, and so anecdote does have, of course, a, a very important place, um, even if uh, in some areas of the sciences it, it's, um, it's looked on with suspicion. And of course, anecdotes can become part of scientific explanation and scientific practice, as you discuss in Double Blind so well. It seems that many of these stories which are told uh, to explain what we experience, what we uh, have to explain, become kind of anecdotal in their retelling and retelling and retelling to the point where we forget that actually what we're saying is that we don't know. In a sense, the Big Bang is an anecdote and it begins with a tautology, you know, initial conditions. What else could there have been but initial conditions at the beginning? We still have a mystery, an unsolved mystery at inception. I think Terence McKenna used to say, give me one free miracle and I'll explain the rest, didn't he? The free miracle being uh, <laughs> the creation of matter and energy and all the laws that govern it in a yeah. single instant from nothing. Exactly. So, so, you know, once, once you grant me that, which we're, which we're going to fig leaf with the, with the phrase initial conditions, you know, then, then everything makes perfect sense. But I, I prefer to experience the, the vertigo of the, um, what we, we don't know. I think it's so important, and there's perhaps a more old-fashioned form of, of science um, communication which involves disseminating slick certainties to to a naive public who need to be filled with facts mm. um, but I find that I learn much more if I'm invited into the big questions and shown how to navigate them I think a double line you 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 come back to that 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 mystery that not knowing and, and, and hold the space open for uncertainty I suppose when you answer a question it stops being a question in some sense you've killed the question with the answer um, but the open question sort of summons you into uh, its continued becoming. And so I like this sense of um, to, to have open questions, questions that you aren't in a hurry to extinguish. I think that's what makes life and narrative dynamic and, um, and, and entertaining and honest. <laughs> That was vintage authors Merlin Sheldrake and Edward St. Alban in conversation, and we really hope you enjoyed listening. You can find out more about their books Double Blind and Entangled Life in the episode notes. If you enjoyed the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave us a review or a rating on your podcast platform. If you haven't already, do make sure you subscribe so you can catch our next episode. You can get in touch with us at Vintage Books on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and there is also a link to our newsletter in the notes. Until next time, keep reading boldly and thinking differently. Mm-hmm.